T-minus 15 seconds, guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9, ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour, liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. Okay, engine stop. APA at a defense. Host control both autos. Engine command override off. Engine arm off. 413 is in. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. My guest on Cosmic Perspective Radio is NASA Goddard Space Flight Center scientist, Dr. Michelle Thaler. Dr. Thaler, thanks for joining us on Cosmic Perspective Radio. Hey, great to be here. Thank you. Uh, Today's topic is the discussion of stars. We call them diamonds in the skies, and literally some of them are diamonds in the sky. Oh, our stars, of course, you know, they're, they're my life. I always felt this sort of strange attraction to the stars. You know, even before I knew what they were, as a little kid, my mom said I was always trying to get outside and you know walk outside and see the stars when I could barely walk. So they've been a, a huge part of my life, and I, I think they're old friends. There are 100 billion stars in our galaxy, billions of galaxies in the observable universe, more stars than grains of sand on the Earth. Some stars are solitary and others orbit around each other in pairs or in threes. I'd like to talk first about the distances of stars, and I guess the best one to start with is our sun. What's the distance uh, from the Earth to our sun, and then, of course, to the next nearest star from us? Well, sure. So, I mean, our sun, of course, the nearest star, on average, it's about 93 million miles away. We are a little closer in December and a little farther away in July by about 3 million miles. So the Earth's orbit is not perfectly circular, so it varies a little bit. It's kind of fun to think that we're actually closest to the sun in the winter in the northern hemisphere. So that's a little bit of trivia for you there. And the nearest star to us, other than the sun, is Alpha Centauri, specifically Alpha Centauri Proxima. Alpha Centauri is a system of three stars. And the star that actually comes closest to the Earth is called Alpha Centauri Proxima. It's a small star. The main star, the main binary star, Alpha Centauri, is actually a beautiful star to see in the southern sky. I was just in Chile, and uh, even though it's two sun-like stars, they're not particularly bright stars, but because they're so close to us, they look quite bright in the sky. So that's about four light years away, and a light year is uh, about six trillion miles. So the closest star to us other than the sun is about four times six trillion miles, (laughs) 24 trillion miles. Amazing distances. And our sun being 93 million miles away, how long does it take the light from our sun to get to our eyes? Light travels at about 186,000 miles per second. And for 93 million miles, that takes roughly eight minutes. So, you know, when you see the sun in the sky, you're seeing it back in time, as it was about eight minutes ago. And, of course, for Alpha Centauri, when you talk about four light years, we have that unit of distance. Light travels in one year, as we mentioned, about six trillion miles. So you see Alpha Centauri about four years ago. It's just amazing thing that the nearest star to the sun is, we, we look at it, what's happened four years ago. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> with, with more than 100 billion stars in our own galaxy, the Milky Way, and, of course, it's one of billions of galaxies, as I said, What's the distance across our galaxy from edge to edge for the Milky Way galaxy? Well, you know, it kind of depends on how you count it, because the Milky Way galaxy, uh, you can think of it as a, a big frisbee of stars, a big disk of stars. But there actually are things that are farther out. There are globular clusters of stars that are big, giant clusters. Some of these have up to a million stars. They can even get a little bit farther away. And uh, there's also sort of colder gas that extends beyond the disk of stars. But if simply put, the main disk of stars for the Milky Way is about 100,000 light years across. So if you're looking at stars at the other side of our galaxy, you're seeing them as they were 100,000 years ago, and that's pretty amazing. And the size of the galaxy, I think, is something that, that people 
really don't understand. A single galaxy, you can say the word, the Milky Way galaxy, but how big is that? And probably the best scale I know of is if you think about how big our sun is, the sun is so large you could fit a million Earths inside the sun. That's incredible. But let's say you put the scale so that the sun was about the size of the dot of an eye on a page. So think about the entire sun being the size of the dot of an eye. How big would the Milky Way galaxy be at that scale? And uh, the answer is the Milky Way galaxy would be slightly larger than the Earth. So if you think about the sun, something unimaginably huge, being just a tiny dot of an eye, think about the size of the Earth being our single galaxy. And actually, we now know of trillions of other galaxies. Trillions. I know at one time we were talking about billions. Yeah, it keeps going up. (laughs) Thanks to the uh, Hubble Space Telescope. That's right. Absolutely, yes. When we look up at the stars in the night sky, they're different colors, blue, yellow, red. And how do these stars get these colors? How do they shine in those colors? And can you tell us a little bit about each of them? Well, sure. I mean, it's actually a wonderfully simple thing. Stars can be very complicated. We have a whole building of scientists here at Goddard that are trying to figure out exactly how the sun works. But in essence, they're basically hot balls of hydrogen gas, mostly hydrogen, a little bit of helium, a smattering of everything else. And they really glow because they're hot. There's a nuclear fusion reaction going on in their core. And that nuclear fusion reaction is brought about just by gravity. There's so much gas, so much stuff in a star, that gravity crushes down on the center of the star, the core, and drives the temperature up to millions of degrees, hot enough for a nuclear fusion reaction to start. And then after that, all you really have is gas being heated by that nuclear fusion reaction. And if you think about just a burner on your own stove, right, I mean, something very close to home, something actually kind of low-tech, if you turn your burner on, the first thing you'll notice is that the burner starts to glow kind of a dark red, just barely visible, a little bit dark red, and then as as it gets hotter, it goes more towards an orange color. Uh, If you get it really hot, you might actually have sort of a yellow-looking, very, very hot burner. And then if you actually could heat it up very hot, say about 50,000 degrees, hopefully you do not do this in your kitchen, uh, you would actually see the metal glowing almost blue-colored. And sometimes you can see this in a very, very hot foundry where the metal glows actually white, you know, or even a little bit blue. And so these colors are just simply produced by the gas being different temperatures. Red stars are cooler stars. They're like when you just turn the burner on. They tend to be very small stars, low-mass stars. You can actually get red stars kind of in two different ways. Uh, Most of the stars in the galaxy, and I mean like 80% of them, are small, cool, red-colored stars. They're actually very hard to see in the night sky. Or you can have stars that are dying and they've bloated up and they're actually cooling off as they bloat up. And a star like that is Betelgeuse in Orion, the brightest star in Orion, which looks red. It's actually a giant star. It's as big as the orbit of Jupiter in our own solar system. It's huge. But the reason it's, it's red is it's cooled off as it's expanded. And then the other colors that you're looking at, the blue stars are very hot stars. Like I said, the stars might be about 50,000 degrees, the surface temperature. And then there are stars that are kind of yellow colored, like our sun, which are about 10,000 degrees. So the different colors are just simply the different temperatures of the surface of the star. Do stars basically, do they go through a phase of different colors in their lives, uh, depending on the size of them? Well, for the most part, for the normal life of a star, the temperature just has to do with the mass of the star, and that doesn't change that much. So low-mass stars will always be sort of dim and red, and middle-mass stars like the sun will exist through most of their life, pretty much all of their normal life. They'll be roughly the same temperature. They may change a little bit, but not much. So stars don't really move from one color to another in their normal lives. A bright blue star, a very massive star, uh, the the star Sirius, for example, is sort of a white-hot star. Um, That's because it's more massive than the sun. It's actually hotter than the sun. But the thing that happens is that when stars begin to die, then they will change color because they'll do things like they'll expand to vast volumes and they'll cool off as they do that, or they'll contract down and be very, very hot as they collapse down. But during the normal life of a star, the temperature and the color stay pretty much the same. So stars, they they live and they die, just like like people do. Absolutely. And we don't think of it that way, of course. But our, our sun itself is a yellow star. It's supposedly in the middle of its life. And comparing the sun to other stars, you know, how massive is it uh, compared to other stars? And what will happen to the sun once it, it burns up this fuel? 
Yes. So, I mean, there's a range of stellar masses, and there are even objects that are kind of transitions between giant planets and stars. The very lowest mass stars are actually not physically much larger than the planet Jupiter. They're actually much denser. They probably have about 100 times the mass of Jupiter. So if anybody says that Jupiter is kind of a near miss to being a star, that's actually not true. It would need to be about 100 times more massive for that same volume to actually get those nuclear fusion reactions to start. So I would say stars go from about you know, 100 times the mass of Jupiter, just a couple times the percentage of the mass of our sun. The, uh, the most massive stars uh, are amazingly close to 100 times the mass of our sun. And uh, these are very kind of unstable, violent stars. You can see some of them in the sky, especially in the south. There's one called Eta Carina, which is quite bright. And this star has something close to 100 times the mass of the sun. And it's, it's ready to blow up pretty much any time. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the sun's kind of mid-range when it comes to masses. We talked about what happens in the star's core atoms fuse together and they produce nuclear fusion. Can you tell us a little bit about what happens inside that star during this fusion process? And what's the difference between nuclear fusion and nuclear fission? Yeah, nuclear fusion. So nuclear fusion is like a hydrogen bomb. Yeah, that's right. Well, there's two sorts of things. There's nuclear fission, which is breaking big atoms up. And that was sort of the the classic, you know, unfortunately, like 1940s, you know, Hiroshima bomb in Japan that we would you take uranium, you break it up. Nuclear fusion is what a hydrogen bomb would be. You actually take small atoms like hydrogen, you ram them together and they stick. And when they stick together, there's a tremendous amount of energy that's released. And so what happens inside a star is you start off with lots of hydrogen in the middle of the star. And it's only the very core of the star where it's hot enough for these fusion reactions to occur. Um, fusion reactions will only occur when you get up to many millions of degrees. And as I mentioned, the surface of our sun is about 10,000 degrees. So that's way, way too cool for fusion to happen anywhere near the surface. It happens very deep inside the star. And so you start fusing hydrogen into the next heaviest element, which is helium. A helium atom is basically just two hydrogen atoms stuck together. That's really all it is. And eventually, after billions of years, so the sun is actually fusing a tremendous amount of hydrogen at any second. It actually converts about one Mount Everest worth of mass into pure energy every second. It fuses that much hydrogen. It's incredible. And you let this go on for billions of years, and eventually you run out of hydrogen in the core of the star. Everything has been converted into helium, the heavier atom. And helium, it, you can also fuse helium into larger atoms too, but you need to have a much higher temperature. And so what happens is the star begins to die when it runs out of helium in the core. There's no more hydrogen to fuse. You're left with all this helium, but nothing's really happening. It's not really fusing. And so there's no longer this explosion in the middle of the core of the star to support it against the crush of gravity. And so gravity crushes it in to higher and higher temperatures until eventually you start fusing helium into heavier elements like nitrogen and carbon and sulfur and all kinds of things like this. But, but these reactions are very energetic and very unstable, and the star bloats up to this huge size. As I mentioned, you know, Betelgeuse and Orion is about the size of the orbit of Jupiter, and the sun will probably bloat up to close to where the orbit of Mars is in our solar system. So that will happen, we think, in about, you know, probably about 4 billion years from now, something like that. So it all happens when you just you, you lose hydrogen in the core because it's all been used up. So gravity itself keeps a star round, I guess, at the same time. We have this battle between gravity and fusion. Is that how it works? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's wonderful to think of this. I mean, the, there's nothing solid about a star. A, a star is just made out of gas. It's basically an explosion. It's a giant nuclear bomb that's so big it can't explode because gravity pulls it back in. There's nothing solid keeping a star together. You have this explosion in the, in the interior, all of this nuclear fusion going on. But there's so much stuff that it has gravity, and gravity crushes things in towards the center. So the balance of those two things is honestly, that's what a star is. A star is just the balance between a giant nuclear explosion that's happening in so much material, so much gas, that the gravity keeps the explosion back down. So that sort of wonderful balance, in essence, is what every single star in the sky is. It's amazing to think that this uh, tug of war is going on all the time in these stars. I know even our star is variable. It pulsates a little mm -hmm. bit. And this thing happens all the time. But I guess gravity is, is what 
basically eventually takes over when the star dies. Well, absolutely. And then it's all about how much mass you have. That actually determines what happens to a star when it dies. Because basically is how much crush of gravity there is at the end. And can anything hold itself up against that crush? Can you tell us about what happens to different masses of stars when they run out of hydrogen and die? As we mentioned, most of the stars in the universe are low-mass stars. So for low-mass stars up to you know, nearly you know, the mass of the sun, maybe a little bit more than the mass of the sun, it's kind of a gentle death. Basically what happens is, is that the, the fusion reactions eventually stop. The star will fuse helium for a little while into heavier elements. Like we said, we, we get a lot of carbon this way, you know, nitrogen, oxygen, but that's it. There'll be no more fusion reactions. The center temperature just never gets high enough to fuse these heavier atoms into something even bigger. And so after that, the sun just kind of cools off and gravity crushes it together. There's no longer any outward nuclear explosion in the middle. So gravity crushes it down. And it'll crush it down to a ball about the size of the Earth. And it'll be very hot because <laughs> gravity will be crushing all this together. But this little cinder basically just cools off. And that's called a white dwarf star. And uh, white dwarf stars are very dense. There's a lot of gravity crushing the mass of the sun together. And so we usually say like a teaspoonful of white dwarf material. If you could take a teaspoon, dip it into a white dwarf, uh, a teaspoon would have about as much mass as like an 18-wheel truck. I've always uh, hypothesized that the hammer of Thor that no one can lift, I mean, that, that must be white dwarf material, right? You know? So it's, uh, it's very, very dense. But that's all that happens to it. It really just cools off. And uh, some of these white dwarfs, as they cool off, you, you mentioned you know, they may actually uh, have a lot of carbon in them. You can think of them as sort of super compressed, very hot diamonds in some ways. They're just cinders that sort of die away slowly. Now, the next thing that happens is if you have a little more than the mass of the sun, um, and really just about one and a half times the mass of the sun, not that much more. Basically, gravity crushes the atoms together even further. And what you get then is, is a wonderful monster. I mean, we, we study these at NASA, and they blow my mind. It's something called a neutron star. And a neutron star is about 10 miles across. So think about like one and a half times the mass of the sun compressed into a ball about 10 miles across. And the reason we call them neutron stars, if you know a little bit about an atom, an atom has protons and neutrons in the core, in, in the nucleus. And then there are electrons that are in orbits around the nucleus. And the gravity of this material, the density of this material is strong enough that it crushes the electrons into the nucleus of the atom. And they combine with protons, a positive charge and a negative charge, they combine together to become neutrons. And so in fact, a neutron star is almost entirely made of neutrons. You can think of it almost like a giant atomic nucleus. It's held together by nuclear forces, the same things that dominate the nucleus of atoms, but it's about 10 miles across, just incredible. And we study these routinely at NASA. There are a lot of them that we actually track in the sky. There's a mission called NICER, N-I-C-E-R, stands for Neutron Star Interior Composition Explorer, if you want to find out more about that mission. So a neutron star is basically the limit that matter can hold up. The, you know, the electrons are crushed into the nucleus of the atom. It's super dense. Uh, about a teaspoonful of neutron star material would have as much mass as Mount Everest. So a huge mountain per teaspoon is how dense that material would be. Then you have the last stage, <laughs> the, the, the black hole. And for a black hole, basically nothing can hold up against the gravity. No structure of matter can hold it up. And so, you know, not only are neutrons crushed into atoms, but the nuclei themselves are crushed into quarks. And even the elementary particles are basically crushed out of existence, and nothing can stop that crush of gravity. And so then you get basically a bottomless pit of gravity, an area of the universe where gravity is so strong that it actually bends light back in. And that's why we call it a black hole, because any light that's coming from near the black hole, the black hole's gravity is strong enough to actually warp space itself so that as light travels through space, it bends it back into the black hole. And, and of course, you know, black holes are amazing. The nearest black holes to us are on the order of about a thousand light years away from us. And right now, we're actually orbiting a giant black hole in the middle of our galaxy. We're orbiting that black hole right now at about half a million miles an hour. And uh, the mass of that black hole in the core of the Milky Way is about four million times the mass of the sun. These, these more massive stars uh, than the sun that we've been talking about, uh, Betelgeuse and Orion and Eta Carina in the Southern Hemisphere, 
are they massive enough to eventually become black holes? Yeah, I think so. I'll, I'll have to look up the mass of Betelgeuse, but I believe so. Yeah, I think, I think Betelgeuse is big enough that it will explode violently in what we call a supernova explosion. And, uh, and then it'll become a black hole after that. It's, it's a little hard to predict whether you'll get a neutron star or a black hole because it depends on how much material is blown off from the star when it dies. Uh, very massive stars actually die explosively. They actually explode. And the core of that explosion is left over. It becomes either a neutron star or a black hole. But, but Eta Carina, I don't think there's any way to get around it. I think Eta Carina will definitely become a black hole. And uh, so anything that has somewhere on the order of like 10 times the mass of the sun left over after it's gone through its life has a good chance of becoming a black hole. And Eta Carina, absolutely. That's probably going to become something called a gamma ray burst, where the explosion will be so extreme, you just better hope it goes off in a different direction from the Earth. <laughs> I'm not kidding. If, if Eta Carina goes off and the explosion's directed right at us, the explosions tend to be in jets we've, we've observed. If that jet comes right at us, it would kill us. So the dust that's exploded from, from the supernova later becomes, becomes us. That's right. Yeah. So iron in particular, we've been talking about iron a little bit. Um, the only way you make an iron atom in the universe, and this is true, it's just it's sort of amazing. The only way you make an iron atom is a massive star dying. And specifically, iron is the reaction that, that sets off a supernova explosion. So you can also create iron in sort of the aftermath of a supernova explosion. But it's amazing to think that Sort of the last second of a massive star's life is when it creates iron in the core. And, you know, your blood is red because there's iron in our blood. You know, you think about all the iron around you. you know, I used a cast iron cooking pan you know, last night. All of that iron came from the moment a giant star died. So without a supernova, there'd be no you, no me, no gold, silver, iron, platinum, no Earth, no planets. Absolutely. And specifically, the heavier stuff you mentioned, like gold and silver and platinum, even a supernova explosion, a normal one, doesn't produce that. And it was only about two years ago that we finally discovered what produces these heavier elements. And then we go back to the neutron stars. So most stars in the universe occur in binary stars, two stars that orbit around each other. And a little more than a year ago, we had a chance to observe two neutron stars spiraling together and colliding. They were probably a binary star system, both the stars died and the neutron stars, you know, the, the corpses of the stars spiraled together probably to make a black hole. And in that one single explosion, we saw about 10,000 times the mass of the Earth produced in silver, gold, platinum, and heavier elements up to uranium. So one explosion, one collision of two neutron stars gave us 10,000 times the mass of the Earth of these heavier elements. And so when you think about, like, I've got a gold ring on right now, gold, silver, platinum, all the heavier elements, they were actually produced in a super violent explosion, a colliding neutron star explosion. So that means that the atoms in our body or everything in the Earth itself, they come from different stars, not just one star, but different stars. Oh, I mean, in your body, I mean, you must have the remnants of, of at least millions and probably billions of stars in your one single body. Our solar system moves around the galaxy. We go about half a million miles an hour. It takes us about a quarter billion years to get once around. We pick up material from all around the galaxy as we go around. So in your body right now, as you said, it's not just one star. But I mean, at least millions of stars in your body right now. If nothing else gives you a cosmic perspective, you know, the title of your, your radio show, you know, think about the fact that you came from the stars and uh, you know, your atoms have the entire history of the universe in them. You're listening to Cosmic Perspective Radio with today's guest, Goddard Space Flight Center research scientist, Dr. Michelle Thaler. So, Dr. Thaler, we've discussed how stars die, but we haven't discussed how they're formed. And I guess you could say how they're born. Well, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> it's all wrapped up together, the whole process. You know, we, we kind of take the stars for granted. They live and they die, and there's a cycle where sort of one leads to the other, birth leads to death, and that leads to new stars. But one of the things that kind of makes me pause sometimes is that this is basically something that's slowing down in the universe. Star formation, it's still going on around us. Uh, one of the nearest places is in the Orion Nebula. But we can look back at galaxies that are very far away, and therefore the light took a long time to get to us, and we realize that the star formation rates are slowing down all over the universe. So someday, the era of the stars will most likely be over. And so when we talk about the birth and the death of stars, just kind of mind-blowing to think that this will someday be thought of as some early phase of the universe. 
it's sort of like the early conditions after the Big Bang, only 13.7 billion years after the Big Bang, there was still this process of, of stars forming. So in essence, what a star is, is kind of simple. It's a big cloud of gas and dust, almost all hydrogen. Uh, most of the rest is helium, a little smattering of everything else usually. And these giant clouds that we see, and you know, these are the pictures of the pillars of creation or you know, pictures of these beautiful star formation regions. There are areas of this cloud that are denser, and these are huge clouds, light years across, sometimes dozens of light years across. And when there's an area that becomes denser, gravity begins to pull more material in. And there's a lot of material around. We're talking, like I said, light year sized clouds. And so stuff begins to fall into these denser areas. And eventually that gets kind of violent, almost kind of out of control. Things are falling in. And as this core where everything is falling into gets denser and hotter, it eventually heats up inside these interstellar clouds to many millions of degrees. And it becomes hot enough to start a nuclear fusion reaction. And this is the, the, the simplest way that uh, a star can burn. You just take hydrogen, the simplest atom, I mean, basically just a proton, usually with a neutron, and uh, you ram these nuclei together. And under the temperatures and densities in the core of these clouds, you can get them to stick and form a helium nucleus. And that gives off energy. That's the famous nuclear fusion reaction. You know, we, we hope to have nuclear fusion reactors someday for energy. There are, of course, hydrogen bombs, which use nuclear fusion. But, but that's all a star really is. You have to get this cloud to collapse and then get hot enough inside. So that's the basics of it. So, so where would you like to go from there? <laughs> What's very interesting to me from what you said earlier about stars burning up their hydrogen into other elements, I guess my question is, will the universe eventually run out of hydrogen? Yes, yes. It, I mean, I think it's not really going to be a question in the future of all of the hydrogen being burnt out, but because there's so much hydrogen just kind of floating between the stars, in a, but it's all very, very tenuous. So the available hydrogen in these dense clouds is absolutely getting used up. And stars make it into heavier elements, so they'll fuse helium. And then when the helium runs out, uh, most stars will then take that waste product, helium, and try to fuse it. And some fusion will happen. You know, our star will probably get up to fusing carbon nuclei, maybe some oxygen. Um, if the star is more massive and there's more gravity to get the core to higher temperatures, it can fuse things all the way up to iron. But that's where we stop as far as fusion in the stellar core. Because we, we talked about this last time, that once you fuse iron, you're, you're dead in seconds because iron is not a good nuclear fuel. And um, the thing is, is that you cannot get a star to form from anything but hydrogen. If you have a whole cloud of helium, even, the helium will never get to the temperatures needed just by gravitational collapse to actually start a new star. So you, you get one chance in the universe to make a star, and that's with hydrogen. Nothing else is going to work. And so, so yes, inside these clouds, there will eventually be no more usable hydrogen to make stars. Yeah. So you're saying that you can't get a star from anything but hydrogen. Earlier, we discussed that hydrogen, helium, and the smattering of the dust of exploded stars through gravitational forces make new stars. But in the early universe after the Big Bang, there weren't any stars. There was basically just hydrogen. So hydrogen alone formed the early stars in the universe? Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, hydrogen, we actually believe, is a direct byproduct of the Big Bang. So basically, there was a wonderful book written years and years ago by a man named, I think it was Weinberg, called The First Three Minutes. And I, I want to make sure people understand that we as scientists certainly don't think we understand completely how the Big Bang worked. For example, if there really is such a thing as dark matter or dark energy, our model of the Big Bang does not accommodate any of that. Um, if there's such a thing as particles we haven't discovered, there's all sorts of ways that the details may not be right. But the thing that was such a triumph of theoretical physics is that we basically ran the laws of physics backwards to see what would happen if the universe becomes denser and hotter, eventually reaching trillions of degrees. And our physics predicts incredibly well what the universe looks like today, the abundance of different elements and sort of the structure of the universe. Hydrogen is the only thing, hydrogen and a little bit of helium, that came out of the Big Bang because 
basically things were expanding so fast and cooling off so fast that in the first three minutes, you went from unimaginable temperatures that we have no name for or physics to predict what happens at those temperatures to everything expanding so fast that it become cool enough that you couldn't have nuclear fusion anymore, all in the first three minutes. So hydrogen was created in the first three minutes, basically just raw protons <laughs> and neutrons. And some of that was able to fuse into helium a little bit. But then after that, it expanded enough that no more nuclear fusion happened. So the only elements that were present in the very early universe were hydrogen and helium. And this is actually not even a theory. I mean, this is one of the great proofs of the Big Bang, that the farthest away we can see is equivalent to a time about 400,000 years after the Big Bang. And uh, that's the microwave background radiation, which uh, several Nobel Prizes were, uh, were awarded for. But that radiation from 400,000 years after the Big Bang is a time when the entire universe would have been as hot and as dense and basically as opaque as the surface of the sun. So we can look back to a time when the whole universe was like the surface of the sun. And from what we see in that radiation, you know, you're looking just at hydrogen and helium gas. And so that's, um, that's pretty incredible that we can actually see that. We can, we can see back to a time. You can see galaxies far away enough that they have different proportions of elements than we do now. They have fewer elements except for hydrogen and helium. And one of our big holy grails with the James Webb Space Telescope is to, to look at a star far enough away that we basically catch one of the first generation stars. So just like you said, a star that has nothing in it except hydrogen and helium. Stars today, because other stars have died and spread their debris into the galaxy, they have a little bit of everything. They have a little bit of, you know, technetium and a little bit of iron and a little bit of calcium. And that changes the way the star behaves. It changes the way the atmosphere of the star behaves. So we've never observed a star that was just hydrogen and helium. And we have some theories and some, some conjectures that they could be pretty spectacular. They might be thousands of times the mass of the sun, far, far, far bigger than stars get today. And they may be dominated by dark matter. And again, I mean, we're not even really sure that dark matter exists, but the universe back then was so much denser and, I mean, smaller, just to some extent, the visible universe, that dark matter would have dominated gravitational poles of things. So what do you do if a star has dark matter in its core? And so for, for those of you that are astronomy fans, we talk about population one and population two stars. And these are the legendary population three stars, the first stars that ever existed. And so all you really needed to start the whole universe was hydrogen, gravity, and a lot of time. Exactly. I always tell people, you got the first three minutes, you come out with a lot of hydrogen, and you basically let that sit for 13.8 billion years, and you get kittens and rock stars and people interested in astronomy and everything else in the universe. Since we started talking a little bit about dark matter, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. I was very fortunate to have Vera Rubin as my very first guest on Cosmic Perspective Radio. Oh, wow. It was such a wonderful interview. And, you know, she studied galaxies and she found out, of course, that the stars on the outer edge of the galaxy were orbiting at the same time period as the stars and towards the center of the galaxy. So I know we're talking about theory here, but okay, we got this tiny bit of visible matter in the universe, mm -hmm. and then we got dark matter and dark energy. How does that all kind of go together? <laughs> sure, sure. It's an amazing story. And Vera Rubin, as you know, of course, is one of the grandparents of this idea. Vera was working mostly in the 1960s and 70s. And then before her, in the 40s and 50s, there was an astronomer named Fritz Zwicky. And Fritz Zwicky was looking at whole galaxies, you know, big, big galaxies orbiting around each other. And he was uh, able to estimate the, the speeds of the galaxies from looking very closely at the spectral lines of the stars. And he realized that, that even the galaxies were rotating so fast around each other that they shouldn't be gravitationally bound to each other. They should just fly off. That something seemed to be binding these galaxies together. So how do you estimate the mass of a galaxy? That's a little bit of an art, too. I mean, obviously, you add up all the starlight. But galaxies have things other than stars. They, they have, they've got planets, and they've got black holes, and they've got things that don't necessarily give off a lot of light. They have a lot of cold gas drifting between the stars. I mean, none of that could Zwicky detect with these telescopes in the 50s. And so Zwicky's first idea was that there must just be a lot more stuff in galaxies than, than we can see. And it seemed totally logical. 
there's probably many black holes, millions of black holes. They're, they might be even more massive than stars. Surely, over time, we'll find what this missing mass is. So the galaxies were acting like they were much more massive. They were flying too fast around each other to be in an orbit. And so Vera Rubin looked at things more locally here in the Milky Way galaxy. And just as you said, she was, she was able to take the velocity of stars. We all go around, every star goes around independently in its own orbit around the center of the galaxy. There are sometimes gravitational interactions between the stars. They may change each other's paths. But everything is really going around in basically the same direction. And so she was looking at stars closer into the core of the galaxy and, and ones farther away from us out in the spiral arms of the galaxy. And like you said, she realized that by and large, everything was going pretty much the same speed. And that's not right for orbits. When you think about the orbits of the planets in our solar system, the closer you are into the sun, the faster you got to orbit in order not to fall into the sun. But when you get farther away from the sun, you can be in slower orbits. So this goes all the way back to the late 1600s, good old Johannes Kepler, Kepler's laws, that if you want to stay in orbit around something, the speed at which you orbit depends on how far away you are. The farther out you are, the slower you can orbit, and you won't fall in. But if you're close, you got to orbit really fast. So basically that means that the stars that were on the outer part of the galaxy were orbiting way too fast. And so once again, they should have just flown off into space. The analogy I think Vera used is think about somebody who's spinning a plate on a stick, one of those trick plates, and you put a bunch of peas on the plate. And you start the plate spinning and all the peas just fly off. <laughs> so once again, she had found that the galaxy itself here locally was acting like it had way too much mass. It was orbiting too fast. It shouldn't stick together. But here's what happened in the 80s and 90s and the 2000s is we got much better at finding these objects that don't glow like stars. We found lots and lots of supermassive planets called brown dwarfs all over the place. We couldn't see those before. We found lots of black holes. Black holes usually emit some high energy radiation when they swallow stuff. And so we found lots of them, hundreds of millions of them. We, we found planets, we were able to map even gas that's only a couple degrees above absolute zero. We now have radio telescopes that can see gas everywhere, any hydrogen gas. So you add that all up, it comes nowhere near accommodating for the missing mass. Nowhere near, by like a factor of 10. I mean, it's not even close. So the thing is, what else could be out there that we don't see? We were wondering, is there a form of matter that just doesn't give off any light? When we talk about light, you know, even something that's three degrees above absolute zero in the middle of space will give off radio waves or microwaves, and those are low energy forms of light. So what gives off no light? I mean, nothing made of atoms, nothing made of our type of matter could possibly do that. So they began wondering if there was another kind of matter, and they, they nicknamed it dark matter. Although, you know, a lot of people, I think, including Vera Rubin, thought the better word, it's longer, but would have been transparent matter because we can't see it. Light goes right through it, doesn't interact with it. In later decades, you know, about the last 25 years or so, we have been finding this concentration of mass by looking at something called gravitational lensing. Gravity itself will bend space and time, and light has to travel through space and time. So we see these areas in space where the light, the light from distant galaxies coming through it is, is very distorted. And it tells us that there's something bending space and light there. There's gravity there. But there doesn't seem to be a lot of matter there. And so these areas where we're finding concentrations of mass, but we can't really identify much matter, they're not random. They appear to form filaments that can actually connect the galaxies together. And so now we wonder if, in fact, most of the universe might be made of this other form of matter called dark matter. And it could be that we're just a little bit of like, you know, icing sugar on the top of a cake. You know, the main universe is this other stuff. And all of the galaxies, you know, the, the stuff that brought matter together, the gravity that brought stuff together to form galaxies and stars in the first place could be the sort of underlying scaffolding of dark matter. And that's kind of where things have stood. We still have never identified a particle. We've looked for it in particle accelerators. That's getting a little bit nerve-wracking because we're getting to high enough energies in the particle accelerators we hope to have seen something. And some people suggest we've gone the wrong way. Some people think that there might be a correction to Einstein's laws of gravity at larger scales. 
every experiment we've really been able to do well with Einstein's laws of gravity, it's been done here on Earth you know, in the Milky Way galaxy. And that's where there's a lot of mass around, bending space. And, and maybe things behave a little differently when you're way out between the galaxies. So we don't know yet. We've never confirmed that there really is dark matter. We know that gravity is obviously doing something different. We're assuming it's matter making the gravity. But, you know, it is a mystery. So that's the mystery of dark matter. And, and as I said, if there really is such a thing as dark matter particles, it's a stuff, right? Then it gravitationally would have been attracted to these cores of stars collapsing too, especially in the early universe. And so uh, that's intriguing. Could there be stars that, even though what's fusing is the regular matter and the hydrogen and the light is coming out, but what actually started the gravity bringing the stuff all together and may still be in the core is actually dark matter. Yeah. <laughs> that is pretty cool. Yeah. It is. Let's say that the universe expanded at different rates because of gravity. Could that affect what we're seeing? Yeah. Certainly for something like dark energy, right? So, so dark energy, by, and by the way, I, this was a bad naming decision. Dark energy and dark matter very well may have nothing to do with each other. And not only that, I routinely, once a week, get a question from somebody in the public that asks if dark energy and dark matter make black holes. Because dark, black, right? I, I was like, oh, these things may have nothing to do with each other. While it's true that a black hole can suck in anything with mass, including dark matter, sure, dark matter would go right down a black hole, but black holes are formed when regular stars die. That's the only way we know how to make a black hole. So there's a lot of confusion. So dark energy, like I said, may have nothing to do with dark matter. Dark energy is a separate thing that was discovered in the mid-2000s. Actually, by two people I know very well, there were three people that got the Nobel Prize, and I know Adam Reese and I know Brian Schmidt very well. Adam was in grad school with me, and Brian was my teaching assistant in graduate school. And then I don't know the other person, Saul Perlmutter, who's out in California. They were independently all measuring the velocity of how quickly galaxies are expanding away from us, how, how quickly the universe is expanding. And everybody was sort of thinking that over time, especially with all this new dark matter and gravity discovered, that the speed of the galaxies expanding might, was going to be slowing down. One question was, would the galaxies stop expanding? Were they just going to like come to a terminal velocity and just keep sort of drifting away? Or some people even wondered if they would stop and then come back together again in a big collapse. And I can tell you that nobody, and I mean nobody, thought that the measurement would say the galaxies are getting faster over time. They're accelerating. Nobody saw that one coming. And, I mean, I remember talking to Brian because, I mean, we actually worked at the same observatory, not, not on the same project. But I was like, well, that can't be the case. So there must be something about the stars you're observing that we don't understand or there's some kind of intrinsic error in your measurement. But we have not been able to make this go away. Independent groups over and over now have confirmed this. And so what would make the universe keep accelerating. After the Big Bang, the galaxies don't just fly off. They keep getting faster and faster. We had no word for this. We had no, nobody expected that. So they called it dark energy. Energy is coming from somewhere to accelerate the universe, but we don't know where. We don't know in what form it is. So the idea that gravity may have changed the way the universe expands over time, absolutely. And, and not only that, there may have been jumps in how the universe expanded. There's tentative data, and this is why we're building our next big new space telescope, the Nancy Grace Roman Telescope, is that in the Hubble data and the James Webb Space data, we'll be doing this too, there seems to be a change, and a pretty dramatic one, right about 5 billion years ago-ish. It's almost as if the galaxies, they were still expanding before then, but the rate was slowing down. They were actually expanding, but the rate was slowing. And then all of a sudden something happened and they started accelerating. Sorry, I just hit the microphone. Uh, you you got to have hands to do this, right? Accelerating. You got to be careful not to hit things. But um, believe me, I'm the I'm the first person to tell you that. I'm not talking, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, funny. So that made us wonder if what we were looking at was maybe some type of other force. And when the universe was smaller and denser, in fact, there was enough gravity between the galaxies to start, you know, the expansion kind of slowing down. But then the universe may have reached some kind of critical density where all of a sudden they couldn't feel each other's gravity all that well anymore. 
And there was actually another force that we'd never noticed that was a repulsive force, a repulsive form of gravity. And once we reached a critical density where the galaxies couldn't really feel enough gravity, that became dominant, and it will continue to dominate. And the galaxies will just keep flying off until they're, they're all just lonely little galaxies with unable to see anything else in the sky. It's, it's quite an amazing idea. And, and once again, this effect was discovered only about 20 years ago, 25 years ago. We don't have a huge amount of data about that time 5,000 years ago, which is why we're building a new telescope to do huge surveys of galaxies. Uh, I mean, literally take pictures of billions of galaxies, get their velocities, figure out if there have been any other changes. Have we discovered a new force of nature that we just never noticed before? A lot of intriguing things and very, very few facts, very few observations. It'd be wonderful to, to see in 100 years from now what they know about dark energy and, and dark matter. And, and were these kind of cul-de-sacs that we went up and we didn't have the right idea? Oh, again, if, if Einstein's gravity has a correction for stuff way between galaxies where there isn't much mass, that could explain dark energy. So I think that those are kind of some of the big camps right now is, are we looking at a new form of matter and a new form of energy? Or is it that our understanding of how gravity works? I mean, Einstein is still the best description we have, but it's more than 100 years old. Is it possible that at these larger scales, there's a correction to it? That's I, I can't answer. I'd love to know what, I'd love to know what happens. <laughs> if you had the time, I'd like to talk a little bit about time and gravity. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Einstein was, I think, quoting as saying that the future, the present, and the past are illusions. Oh, yes. I mean, it was really funny. I think he called them annoyingly persistent illusions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, an, what an amazing thing to say, right? I mean, the past, present, and future seem very different to us. Physics doesn't bear that out over and over again. And now we have even more evidence from what goes on in quantum mechanics, but with relativity. Famously, Einstein said that if you had the right perspective, and for him that would probably be in a different dimension, you would not only be able to see all of space, I mean, we could sort of map the universe and we know where the galaxies are, but you would also see all of time laid out like a landscape, every moment existing as much as any other moment. He thought that that was a limitation, a biological limitation of our brains, was that human brains were not able to, to process the fact that there, there isn't a difference between the past, present, and future. And so the illusion is inside us. It's sort of like there's so many things our senses don't sense. I mean, think about infrared radiation, right? There are colors of light our eyes don't see. And there may be types of matter and energy that we don't detect. And, and Einstein just said, you know, our brains just don't do this right. The nature of reality isn't the way we sense it. We have a limited sense of it. That's an incredible thing to say. It's just so intrinsic to reality. One event does not cause another. If every moment in time is laid out, every bit is real as another, then there's no such real thing as causality. I don't lift up my water bottle and take a drink because I want to. That was all embedded in the structure of space-time. You know, and also this idea that obviously the passage of time and for us mortality is a pretty big deal. And this was this became very personal to me when my husband died of cancer two years ago. And you know, as he was dying, you know, I said, when the universe began, I was right here holding your hand. You know, and when when the universe ends, I'll be I'll be right here. And we think that that's literally true. And does that help with grief and stuff? I, not really. I mean, it still was horrible. But, you know, it. you may want to look at scientists a little differently because, I mean, we're walking around among you and we don't really buy all of this time and space stuff. You know, I mean, that, that, what, what a thing to say. Because <laughs> we grew up as time as a measurement of distance, kind of, right? It, a day is how long it takes the Earth to spin around on its axis and a year is how long it takes it for it to go around the sun and... Even our watches used to have hands on them. We measured how long it took for them to go around. The, yeah. But but that's not what space-time is. I think that's what Einstein was trying to say, but I don't think he could really quantify it himself as well. 
There's nobody that can perceive this other nature of time. We're humans. We all have the same brain. But the thing is, in a way, it kind of surprises me how long it took us to figure that out. Because today, it's experimentally true. We would get the wrong measurements from the GPS satellites if we didn't account. And this is actually something Goddard does. We do this here at Goddard. Um, if we didn't account for the fact that they're moving so fast, their time is slowed down relative to us. And we now have atomic clocks that are so accurate, you can put one on the top floor of a building and one on the bottom, and the one on the bottom will run more slowly because it's more close to the Earth's gravity, the Earth's center of gravity. So now we actually can measure this. But one of the reasons I think, and, and this also is something Einstein kind of put together himself, is that light does not experience space and time. Think about, I'm here looking at light bulbs, I'm looking at the light from my computer screen. Light is all around us. It's not anything that seems very exotic. But when you're traveling at the speed of light, which only energy can do, matter cannot do this, then time actually stops. So time slows down as we go faster and faster. At the speed of light, time stops. And that means that a photon has no idea what this time thing is. And to the reference point of a photon, it travels the entire universe in an instant, in, in no time. So to the photon, the universe never expanded. The universe is a single point of space and time. And light all around you, and maybe this will freak you out. You can sort of go out going, ah! You're surrounded by energy that does not understand what you mean by space and time. So we shouldn't be so surprised. If you think about it, it's incredibly how obvious that space and time cannot be the way our brain perceives them, because light doesn't even know what you're talking about. And things like quantum entanglement, you know, people have asked me about this, where one atom will know what another atom is doing, even if they're light years apart. And it's basically because the universe, you know, you say, but, but universe, there's so much space between these two, and there's so much time for light to travel. How does this work? And the universe goes... What do you mean by this space and time stuff? I mean, I mean, to the universe, these two are the same quantum thing. And it doesn't care if it's a light year across or if it's a millimeter across. The universe doesn't think that is a, is a logical question. It's like, I have no idea what you mean. And, and I, I've been trying to tell people that, that people say, well, how can quantum entanglement work over these vast distances? It's like the distance thing is something our brains are putting in there. The universe doesn't think about it that way. The universe thinks these two things interacted quantum mechanically. They're connected. They're always connected. Put one in the Andromeda galaxy, put one here. Doesn't matter. The universe doesn't know about space and time. Has no, no idea what you're talking about. It's, it's hard to fathom, but like you say, it's, it's so interesting how like it just doesn't all fit together and then we just keep trying. You know, we go back to the, back to the drawing board. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, you know, I mean, that's why we're here. I mean, astronomy and being a scientist is so much less about the canon of what we know, huge amounts of facts. Oh, it's always about what we don't know. It's always about, well, how does space and time work? Or how did those big black holes get there? And that's why you're a scientist. You're not trying to just learn all of the things we do know. It's all about what we don't. And the thing with Webb is that we're seeing into areas of space we just never have before. We're seeing farther back with such detail. I mean, yes, we, we've seen the microwave background radiation, which is even farther back in time still, but that was with big pixels. I mean, just basically just detecting the radiation from everywhere on the sky and a, a little bit of figuring out over huge scales that there were some temperature differences. But these are actual fuzzy but amazing images. I mean, we, this is real. We can see giant black holes forming 13 billion years ago. That's it's, that's amazing, and that's true, and it's something we can, we can just take pictures of. Michelle, I know that you have to go. I appreciate you joining us on Cosmic Perspective Radio today with your informative and enlightening discussion about stars and the mysteries of the universe. Great to be here, Andy. Good to see you again. <laughs> Same here. Thanks. <laughs> okay. Bye.